0: Welcome to the second episode of Taken Off the Ritz. I'm Dan Garman. I had written and recorded a long intro to this episode, but after listening back, I was really unhappy with it. It felt shiny and manicured and dishonest and honestly pretty holier than thou. And that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid and cut through by having these conversations and having this podcast. So, in that spirit, here's a more stripped-back version of what I was trying to say the first time. There was a large conversation about the casting of the replacements for Sweeney Todd on Broadway the past couple weeks. A lot of people critiqued the decision to cast Aaron Tveit and Sutton Foster in the two lead roles, but many defended it as well. The piece that felt left out of the conversation, regardless of the merits of both sides, was that Broadway is a business, and casting is equally much based in the economics of running a show as artistic merit is, if not more. I wish we had more honest conversations about how the idea of the entertainment industry being a pure meritocracy is a falsehood, at least once you reach a certain skill level. And that beyond that, the person who gets a job could have gotten that job for one of a million other reasons from behind the scenes nepotism to a coked out casting director having an affair or an infatuation to it just being the safest, most pleasing option for a board of directors and or investors who are deeply entwined in the financial success of a project. There's a constant tension between pure artistic expression and capitalism, and even if there are moments where it seems like the two are able to perfectly align, I believe, in reality, they are oil and water. They will never actually be able to mix. There's no value judgment here, though. I don't think that that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. It's a truth that I wish we could honestly recognize and call out more. I wish we could see more than box office numbers. I wish we could see weekly or monthly running costs of shows. I have had the privilege of seeing some of those, and it is very illuminating. Maybe it would show us that outwardly controversial decisions are actually the only thing able to keep a show running profitably. Maybe it's more important for everyone else on a project to still receive a consistent paycheck by selling out to the lowest common denominator in some way or another. Maybe it's not worth it to risk a show closing or a TV show not getting renewed or an album not being true to an artist's established sound or brand by taking an artistically motivated, exciting risk. For artists, risk is excitement. Risk is novelty. Risk represents why we do the things that we do. What's the use of doing something that's already been done. Anyone that we respect and revere artistically has found a new voice or developed a new niche or expanded the artistic radius of what's possible in some way. But from a financial perspective, risk is the worst possible word. You do not want risk. You want stability. You want predictable, dependable returns on investment. These types of unglamorous realities are some of the many reasons that I've wanted to have honest conversations with people working in arts and entertainment, and boy, do we have a great conversation for you today. This week's guest is an Emmy Award-winning lighting designer and director turned social worker, She's a large part of the reason that I've even begun to have any of these conversations and thoughts and being able to express them out loud and create this podcast. Please welcome Lizzie Mahoney, AKA my wife, to Taken Off the Ritz. We're here with Elizabeth Mahoney, (laughs) a.k.a. Lizzie Mahoney, a.k.a. Emmy Award-winning lighting director, a.k.a. my wife and a social worker in training at the moment. Um, Welcome to the show. You're here for episode number two. Yeah. Ah, it's so good to have you. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because you're one of the people of everyone I know who kind of made me start thinking about these types of conversations in a way that maybe I hadn't. Um, and so I'm excited to get into that.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry I ruined your entire life, and now you're just a podcaster. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see.
1: Darn critical thinking skills. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. No, just I get to listen to the sound of my voice more often than uh, than maybe previously. but Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I wanted to start and just if you wanted to give people a broad overview of kind of your trajectory at the moment, just where you started and where, you know, any school or early professional experiences and where you are now, and then maybe we can go little by little. But just from from a macro perspective, do you just want to talk about kind of the shape of your career thus far?
1: Yeah, totally. Um So, yeah, I mean, like, I think most people starting in the entertainment industry just, like, was a really strong theater kid. Um, I grew up in the outskirts of Houston, Texas, in a town called Kingwood. Sometimes people know what that is. Sometimes they don't. But um, (laughs) I grew up in Kingwood, Texas, and, um, yeah, I was, like, one of the best uh, technicians I guess in that, um, theater school while I was in high school and won best technician three years in a row, got like a stupid little, I know got a stupid little trophy for it and everything. And that gave me a really inflated ego and (laughs) (laughs) made me think that I could make it in New York city. Um, you know, I just watched too much television, I guess, in terms of like picking a location of where to start my career. Um, and you know, especially since I had such a big theater background. It just made sense to be like where Broadway was and be close to New York. Um, so yeah. And then from, from graduating high school, I got into SUNY Purchase and that's where I did my undergrad right out of high school. Didn't take a gap year or anything. Um, and I studied lighting design there because of Dave Grill um, was, you know, kind of the head of the design technology program and he was one of the lighting directors for the Super Bowl at the time. Very cool. Um, yeah, was a big like resume puller that pulled me in and, um, also someone from my high school went to SUNY Purchase and he came to our high school and was talking, uh, he was like a big time set designer. He did set design for movies and I was like, that's mm. awesome. Like that's abs- absolutely what I want to do. Um, So anyways, I chose that school. Um, It's also close to New York City and has a history of like hosting a lot of like Broadway lighting designers as well. And I was going into lighting design. Um, And I had an absolutely terrible, miserable time. My teachers hated me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so anyways, I worked a little bit in entertainment industry and did some theater work. Um And then I also found my way into television work and work predominantly at NBC Sports now. Um But I also have a long history with NBC Universal overall. I did some work on like The Maury Show and um, Steve Wilkos and did some drafting for there and also Judge Jerry, which is Jerry Springer's Um, Rest in peace. I know, rest in peace. Uh, What a sweet man, also. Just darling. That's so So, good
0: to hear. That's so good to hear. Yeah,
1: sometimes it's a hit or miss, right? With those talents you never know.
0: Especially Jerry. I feel like he could have gone either way. He could either could have been the... He would only be either the absolute nicest person you've ever met or, like, the worst of the worst. Yeah. And he always came across as super genuine. But anyway, we can talk more about that later. So yeah. So not to interrupt.
1: No, no, no. It's all good. Um, So, yeah, I did... I was the lighting director for season two and season three, and then it got canceled. And then, yeah, he passed a couple years later. Um, So anyways, yeah. Um, <sighs> I did that, and then pandemic came around, and I was like... What the fuck am I doing with my life? I hate this. I was like, school was miserable, and everything as part of my career has also been miserable. Um, Mm -hmm. so I just kind of had like an oh shit moment where I was like, why did I even start this industry to begin with? Like, was it because I got too much validation in high school and I'm just like, I just searched for it for so long, um, that. And then never kind of like came around and I was like, am I doing it for myself? Am I doing it for other people? Like, why am I doing this at all? Um, so that's why I'm back in school. Um, as a I decided to go down the social work path because um I really like I really liked therapy. I read a lot of like cog sci in my free time. Um, and I thought I was too dumb to get into like a a psychology program to be completely honest <laughs> for, for <laughs> so. undergrad.
0: You thought that you wouldn't get into an undergraduate psychology program. No,
1: no, no. For, for master's. For, master's, for a master's program. Yeah. I didn't think they would take someone with a technical theater degree oh, to get into they, like a, uh, a psychology program. Um, so yeah, I, I decided to go to the social work route, um, because you could get your LCSW and then practice therapy that way. Um, and that's what I'm currently doing. now I'm in my field placement. Um, they call it practicum now actually, um, I'm in my practicum placement and I practice um, I, I do intake sessions with um, undergraduates at SUNY New Paltz.
0: Very cool. What a career already. I mean that is such such a crazy uh, thing that you came to those questions which I feel like a lot of people maybe have but they're not willing to take the steps to maybe align themselves with something, Different, And I think a key difference that I hear and that, you know, we've talked about before, but something that I find really interesting about your story is that it sounds like everyone who I've ever spoken to experiences quite a bit of abuse and, you know, has bad experiences in working in entertainment. But usually at the end of the day, at least for me and for a lot of the people I know, you know, this is music is what I've done since I was a young child. Mm -hmm. And it is such a critical part of my existence that it's almost like, well, I've been doing it forever and it's so close to me that I'm working in my given field. And I think something that's really interesting that you brought up very early on, um, which maybe I had enough attachment to that I had a lot wrapped up in it that that you didn't, is that you were able to ask yourself, like, you weren't showing up at work with the newest books on the newest moving light technology. Oh, but people do that. No, I know. (laughs) And and I think that that's actually something that's interesting here is that you you found yourself. There is a space in the industry for people who are super geeky and nerdy about the stuff. But, you know, I think it's more a recognition of where the passion actually lies and you were like, well, is it lights? And I think something that i found very inspiring about listening to your story is that at the end of the day, it, it wasn't lights. It was everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I mean, maybe let's, let's backtrack and let's go back to the very beginning. And if you want to just talk a, a little bit about your high school experience more in depth and just the feelings that what got you into that, uh, and then we can kind of move from there. You gave us the macro. Maybe let's dive in yeah. micro again, just to just to understand more about your perspective. Um, so yeah, what what do you remember? What actually got you hooked at the very beginning on theater or tech yeah. performance? Yeah,
1: um, yeah. It's actually interesting because I like I, I tend to like block this part of my life out, like memory wise, when I look back. But um, I was a competitive dancer for the majority of my life, you know, I feel like, I don't know if there was any specific reason why they signed me up for it. But um, yeah, I feel like, you know, uh, back in those days, it was like, oh, you know, you're assigned gender of female. So now here's some dance lessons. And I just really took to it and I liked (laughs) it. (laughs) Um, So I was a competitive dancer until I was 12 years old. So it's kind of ironic, I guess, like, people ask me that question a lot they're like how did you come from like the performer aspect of it and then how did you end up in technical theater um and the reality was that i always i always had interest in being a director like you know my my um My mom would sign me up for like, like I would do theater camp at the YMCA, for example. And Mm -hmm. I was, I was Gabriella in high school musical that dates me a little bit, but not as much as you, I guess. So we are,
0: (laughs) I mean, this is the thing though, is that you are a performer in some regard at heart. Yeah. And I'm interested to hear more about how how you found, you know, design tech instead of performance. But yeah, so continue.
1: Yeah, I feel like um, performance was always fun, but there was no, like, means of control and, like, I don't know, I never really found the art to it. And I think maybe, maybe I was too young in a way, but I think really early on, I was like, I don't have enough say in what's going on artistically. Like, I had a really big interest. I loved watching, I loved watching like directors kind of like. Put the whole piece together and I was like I want that position so Mm. um, I think that's kind of why I took to lighting more than anything I think lighting is like most tied in terms of like um, storytelling I think it's most tied to direction and it's kind of like underrated in that regard Um, but yeah uh, there wasn't a lot of directing opportunities like for obvious reasons in high school so I just became really (laughs) good at uh, lighting because that was kind of like the closest I could get interesting yeah um and the technology part just kind of like came along for the ride. Like that was never like my primary interest. That's why you never saw me like sitting around <laughs> researching moving lights. It was like they're just tools for for the artistic expression. It was never right. it was never about the technology. I
0: think the devil's advocate to that would be that the the more you understand the you know people there's 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 a balance all the time, but people who get very gear oriented, I think it's usually I would hope in the exploration of being able to, you know, bring out that expression more eloquently, you you open yourself to having more tools. So I totally understand why, I mean, I, I'm a huge gear nut for music stuff. Yeah. And I I remember looking at you at the beginning and saying, huh, it's really interesting that that's not something that maybe motivates you the same way. Um, It probably
1: would have helped a lot to be, to be fair. Like I was a bad I had no interest in, in stuff like that. And I think that's kind of like why pandemic-wise it kind of came to a halt. Because I was like, there's no motivation to learn anymore more about lighting.
0: The funny thing about this <laughs> that we're leaving out here is just mm-hmm. how absurdly talented you are. And everything that I've ever seen you design is so visceral. And, you know, it was one of the things that drew us together was we worked on a project that was an immersive house party show in Brooklyn back in 2016, we worked on Kerrigan Loudermilk's The Bad Years mm-hmm. uh, in an immersive workshop. And your kind of vision there and then stuff I saw you do over the years, you know, that it it was some of the only stuff that it made me recognize lighting. I think I never really had yeah. an idea. Lights existed and they turned some colors and helped tell the story, but they were never center stage maybe the way that you and you know the people you were working with uh kind of were able to telegraph that um but anyway to go to go back to so you're in high school and you're doing this and i guess the real question is at what point did you decide that this was your career path so you know quote unquote and and at what point did you make the firm decision that uh you were going to go to college for this. And what did you imagine your life? Did you imagine anything about what your lifestyle would be upon graduation? Was it just, I'll go to New York or what, you know, what was that?
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's really funny that you mentioned it. I mean, I would have to, conversations with, um, like my technical theater director growing up. And like, we had like this kind of like, you know, Theater, like, local theater kind of, like, award show, like, Emmy, not Emmy Award, but, uh, Tony Award-like, right? Right. Um, and I designed, you know, (laughs) the, uh, my junior and senior year, I designed the lights for, um, the show, the musicals we were doing that year, and they got nominated for, like, Best Lighting Design there, and, um... While that was happening, my theater director would be like, would look at me and be like, wow, did you like ever think that would happen in your life? And I was like, honestly, (laughs) yeah, because I'm really dedicated and like, that's what I expect of myself. Um, uh, So, yeah, in terms of like my whole career, I feel like I kind of, you know, I I feel like I kind of ended up exactly where I thought I would be as well. Like it was never really like a... um, like Broadway lighting design is the end goal. It was just kind of, I was kind of like, you know, shooting arrows and seeing where it would stick. And it stuck pretty hard in television. And it wasn't because I was like, I'm going to bulldoze my way there. And a lot of that comes from privilege. Like, I mean, that's a huge part of this conversation that we're leaving out. Like, um, you know, I was, I grew up in like a financially stable home and like, I'm also white. And, you know, I think people really liked the idea of having like a doughy eyed, girl around for a lot of the work that I was able to get sure in the industry. Um, but yeah, um, because of that privilege and, and kind of like what I was expecting out of my career, it just, it was kind of like whatever stuck. Um, and it stuck really hard in television, not because I like set out to make that path, but that's just, kind of, I don't know. It followed the waves and it led me there.
0: Right. So I, I guess the, is there a more direct answer to the question of did you conceptualize the financial reality of having to make a living doing this or did you have enough enough means and enough privilege to just be like, you know, it should be fine. Like, were you still kind of on that train of, well, I work my ass off and uh, I'll be able to make it work.
1: Yeah. I think, um, I don't know. Yes and no. Right. Because you know, a lot of people, when they're like, going, you get that warning, right? You get that warning of like, oh, you're going into the arts. Like, how are you going to make money? That's like kind of, <clears throat> I don't know if that was your experience, but that was, Oh, sorry, I'm getting a dry throat.
0: It's all good. All right, we're back. Uh, technical <laughs> difficulties aside. Uh, I think the question here was, did you have a direct conceptualization of, hey, if I'm going into this, how am I going to make a living in the quote real world after was there any conception of that
1: right um I think there definitely was because you know I kind of came from a household where like uh that was kind of like really philosophy philosophy wise instilled in me um like for example I was really good at math in high school so my dad was always like why aren't you going into engineering like um right. like women in stem that we've all lost <laughs> I guess <Sure>. yes. absolutely <laughs> Um, but anyways, um, yeah, so I think that was, like, for him, he was, like, you're an idiot, like, what are you doing? Like, he wasn't gonna stand in my way, um, for that, so there was a lot of motivation, I guess, to prove him wrong financially. Interesting. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't, like, I wasn't privileged to a point where, like, they supported me. They, They pretty much were, like, you know what, we'll pay, like, we'll figure out tuition for college, but after that, like, it was very hands off and like you're on your own kid. Right. So that motivated me, you know, you know, you brought up, I wasn't the lighting designer for this project. I just want to clarify, but, um, the, the bad years show that we both worked on, Mm -hmm. um, that, that was while I was still in school. That was the beginning of my junior year of, um, of college of my undergraduate degree. So I was trying to start building connections. And I think that was the best thing that I ever did for myself, um, financially and for my career was like starting while you're still in school.
0: Right. I mean, I think that is a huge conversation that is a big part of all of this, right. Is that I think a lot of times it's, it's all about connections and, and sometimes proximity outweighs quote, Maybe quality of school in terms of its reputation, right? Yes. Like, I definitely think, obviously, if you think about Harvard or you think about the, the or Berkeley School of Music for musicians or Juilliard or these places, yes, they're in cities and they're near cities, but there are definitely schools that don't fall within the, that umbrella of geographic proximity that have a lot of reputation. And then the thing that you get there is you get connections, maybe in the business world or maybe in something else. I do think it is very hard to make a living in the arts without being somewhere near where the arts quote unquote is actually happening. And people are able to actually sustain themselves. I had the exact opposite experience. I spent six years. I stayed actually for a couple of years after school up in Montreal. And and I learned a lot of really valuable things that I don't think I ever would have learned had I moved straight to New York. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I moved back to the city, uh, suddenly I was definitely starting from near zero uh, it, because there wasn't a big community of people who had gone to McGill who were in New York City. Yeah. Uh, most of my connections were actually high school and prior related from the Boston area. So I think, yep. especially you being from Texas, you know, I think had I not had the Boston connections, I would have been much more at a loss. Uh So I, I think I really lucked out. But I, I, there was another there was another school that or there were other schools that you were thinking of, right? Like, yeah. well, you know, do you just want to talk about your decision process for arriving at SUNY? Because I think we've talked about that a bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had mentioned, you know, it does have like a good at the time, I don't know about anymore too much, but um, at the time it did have a really good reputation for um, pretty much just like adding people to the pool of Broadway lighting designers and um, your proximity like you like you mentioned to New York City is um, that's where it's all going on. That's where there is the most theater related uh, entertainment work. absolutely. Um, and there's a lot of people that work there in that industry. And, you know, all of the professors there were adjunct professors as well. So like, that wasn't necessarily the route that, uh, that I get. Cause I, I don't know. It wasn't a kiss ass, I guess in school How dare you? <laughs> with all due respect to people who some were, of us, some of us were, <laughs> um, I don't know. I was, I have too much of a, I don't know. My self-worth is too intact, I guess, to be a kiss ass. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> With all due respect. Um That's
0: okay, I have none.
1: But anyways, yeah, I mean all of the professors were their adjunct professors, right? And and that's for a reason. It's because that's this is their part-time job teaching at the at SUNY SUNY Purchase, for example. Um they're all working professionals. And that was a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Like educational educationally wise, you know, you were getting the most up-to-date information whenever they were there, but sometimes they would be there, I don't know, you had like 14 classes a semester, sometimes they would be there for seven and like have someone else teach the course. Yep.
0: Yep. I think that I think we see that pretty consistently through different industries in terms of the practical, you know, I I definitely have heard stories of New York based schools having very well known musicians be your professor. But yeah, exactly. You get about half the half the time with them that you would someone more consistent. And the question is, yeah, you know, there's always a balance between here's the real world experience and And versus here is conventional educational theory. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said for both of those. Uh, I think that's a much bigger discussion. Uh, But anyway, so you finish. So you're doing school. You're working in the city uh, in and out while you're in school. How did you find your way to television? And what was that like uh, at the beginning or, or, or even before that? What were the kind of jobs you were working to make ends meet because I think there was a bunch of theater yeah. stuff that you were doing before like what kind of stuff were you doing and how, how much did that you know how much did that earn you if you're comfortable talking about some of those things just so people starting out you know if you're still in school or you're thinking about going into this like what kind of things were you doing
1: Yeah um really early on I was doing a lot of electrician work especially while I was still in school um Because, you know, I don't know. I feel like we've talked about this maybe briefly, but I don't know if I ever mentioned like when I was working on the bad years, that was not I wasn't getting paid at all. There was like no money involved at all for me because I was interning and I was being an assistant lighting designer in that role. And for me, I mean, you know, that that was kind of like the beginning of it all. Uh, to be completely honest, I met a ton of great collaborators. I met you. I met my freaking husband. For God's sakes, like <laughs>
0: <laughs> it took us a long time to find each other.
1: Yeah, thing. well, but I knew who you were for that reason. Sure, um, you were.
0: You, you gave up in financial gain. What you made up for in you know connections and experience, which is kind of what people dangle in front of you as exactly incentive. But it worked in a um, sense.
1: But but like to to the same point, I was also in school. So so being in school and using that ability to like and using that time and that um, you know uh, if you have the privilege in that time like I definitely recognized the privilege that I had that I didn't have to make um, a living I didn't have to pay for rent in the same way that I did uh, by the time that I graduated I used that time to make the connections for free like that was um, that was a good investment in myself not that I think those are kind of those opportunities of like free work is kind of disappearing. But to do it while you're in school, I like that ended up helping me a lot and making those connections. Yeah.
0: And even if you're on student loans or, you know, even if that while you are in school and, and interest is maybe deferred and you are there to study and you're there to take, you know, that, that, yeah, as long Build as you school Build a network is okay while you can. It. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if it's possible, and if it's geographically, and, you know, just in terms of the connections that people there have, yeah, the yeah. more you network during college, uh, for sure, the more you're going to make yeah. a splash when you hit the real world. So how did you find your, or what other kinds of jobs were you doing? And also, um, the electrician work, were you learning that directly in school? Or what kind of stuff were you doing uh, to make to have these gigs and these jobs. Yeah. Uh, what does that entail for people who don't know, you know, there's a lot of probably music people or other people. What, what kind of stuff did you have to learn to do to make ends meet, um, early on like that?
1: Yeah. Um, I elect- like, you know, going into a program, it, like the degree was in technically theater design and technology, but, um, in terms of electrician work, there was like, Essentially nothing. Right. Um, exactly. So yeah. electricity wise. Yeah. That was like something I kind of had to like learn on my own and, and like learning to be a master electrician. Um, you know, uh, I don't know. It's it literally just like I had so many like good connections and people that I could rely on. Um, but I don't know. I mean, some some people were also kind of really gatekeepy with the, the knowledge of electricity as well. So you would have to do your own digging to a degree. But um,
0: interesting. So let's say someone hires you for a day of electrician work on yeah. something like, that one's what is fi-
1: the- that one's fine. You can usually kind of get away with with that. But, um, I did know a lot in terms of like hanging lights, for example, like you don't have to do, you know, if you're being hired for an electrician, there's no, there's no brain power. It's like pretty much just manual labor at that point.
0: And what did that make you finance? So what does a day rate look like? If you're, if you're your age, you're in college or you're just graduated and someone's like, Hey, come do this electrician work. Yeah. What does that look like?
1: I started, I started at the purchase, like at, at the college it was kind of strange because the theater department um like in school and the performing arts center were like two different entities um Interesting. Yeah, it was it's really strange I guess how it uh ended up that way, but anyways, I worked also at the performing arts center as an electrician and their student rate at the time was $15 an hour and a 4 hour minimum. So I'd make $60 if I worked a 4 hour job and if I worked um, an eight, an eight hour shift, it would be, you know, what is it? 120? 120. Yeah. And then there, and then taxes get take, taken out of it. So yeah, it was just pretty much table scraps <laughs> for a long period <laughs> of time. You're in
0: school, I mean, I think that's still reputable, you know, 15 an hour is yeah. minimum wage in the city and for now. Yeah. And, uh, as a student, hopefully that's, you know, that's something you're using it to build connections. What was the first kind of thing that you did that felt like it broke out of that threshold? of pay uh what kind of work were you Mm. doing like before doing the tv stuff which we'll talk about but like was there an interim kind of job that you know you were working your way up and you were getting different opportunities like what kind of other stuff did you find
1: um yeah I don't know it's such a it's such an interesting question I don't feel like any work outside of television felt anywhere close to like fair (laughs) to be completely honest like did you
0: feel that at the time were you like this is just not enough like i'm being exploited or it was mostly like oh i'm i'm with the right people and like did was there something that counterbalanced it that made it worth it or it was just like i gotta take a job
1: exploited feels like a strong word because yeah, because,
0: yeah
1: well again it's without knowing the full budget of a production, for example. I mean, that's exactly where they want you to be, I think, in a lot of ways, because they're like, we can't really afford much more than this, so, like, are you willing to do it at all for this rate? And sometimes you're like, sometimes you're like, yeah, I am. Um, Right. And you have to work multiple jobs at once to even, like, make ends meet or pay the rent or whatever it was. Like, luckily, I was, like, like, serial monogamous and, like, was always in a relationship at some point. So like even a one bedroom, it was like, I was never paying full rent by myself.
0: There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: There's a lot of like, there's a lot of like couple privilege as well, which I don't feel like gets talked about enough, but like financially that was a godsend, like having a double income and being able to share a room. I never had to pay for my own room by myself in New York city. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think at the beginning I had roommates for for a couple of years, and I
1: well, not just roommates, someone in your room. No, like, I know,
0: but well, yeah. but well, I guess what you're leaving out is that first you weren't just in a one bedroom; you were in a you were in a two bedroom, and you were four people sharing the two bedroom.
1: Correct. correct? Yes. Right.
0: So it's not just it's not just that you're alone in an apartment, splitting yeah. the apartment. It's that you know you found a way to be a couple and split the cost of a room in a shared apartment, which you know when you're starting out, it's pretty important, like. I would have been screwed had that first two years I, f- I, I broke a sublet mid sublet in Brooklyn to find this other place that was rent stabilized. and I had a room that was like the size of most people's studios apartment studio apartments for $600 a month plus utilities
1: mm-hmm.
0: And it was a four bedroom two bath. it was you know it was pretty deep in Brooklyn the flip side was, You know, there's always a trade off. My walk to the A or to the three in Crown Heights was 12 ish minutes just to get to the subway Mm. and then to get from Brooklyn to, you know, to wherever I was going. Like it was a schlep for sure. And that was a trade off I was willing to make because, you know, so that there's a reason that people end up in the neighborhoods that they end up in. You know, a lot of theater people were in Washington Heights or you were in, you were in Inwood. Like people either go uptown or Brooklyn or Astoria. So uh interesting so then how did you find your way to tv like what was the and and what was that experience
1: yeah I mean like I said I never really forced my way through anything I kind of was something that happened upon me uh what was my first job in in tv because I don't think it was NBC sports it was um Alan yeah Alan Blacher um he's a lighting designer he's done like a lot of like um uh, he's done he's the designer for the Maury show and he also did like Martha Stewart for several years, Rachel Ray and wendy Wendy Williams when she was still on air. Um, anyways, he was he kind of had like a hold on like the reality television like talk show type lighting designers. Um, sure. it, and he was doing a pilot episode that his normal <laughs> assistant wasn't available from and through purchase connections, um you know, he gave me a call. I was like, and he was like, are you available to be my assistant lighting designer on this?" And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, Even though it was really intimidating and I essentially knew nothing about television, I was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, literally just, you'd be surprised. Like, I mean, you definitely don't want to be caught with your pants down. But yeah, yeah, in terms of like building a house of cards uh, to kind of like, you know, when someone asks you if you have experience in this, and this is also something that Alan reinforced to me later in my career as well, you just say yes. Yes. And then yep, ask that, someone else later.
0: Yep. That was exactly, <laughs> that was exactly what I did. Actually, you, you had me do this where, where <laughs> I got a call. I got a call or you got a call from a high school that oh, yeah. had paid you very, uh-huh. very well for lighting, designing a show. Mm. And they asked you if you did sound design. And you know, I've done a bunch of live sound, but I had never run a show theatrically. Yeah. And they were like, great tech is this weekend. And you were like, yeah, my, my husband can do it. Uh, And so I went in and exactly like I knew what I was doing enough, but I had never done a real show with actual scenes and faders and everything. I knew how it worked, but I had never physically done it. And yeah, I I think that is luckily I would never do that at anything that wasn't, you know, low ish stakes. It was either me or no, or like nobody They, They were so last minute and it was such the right place to try to learn those things. I think that's the other half is like how, uh, how big a risk are you taking, right? Like right. if you say yes to something, it really has to be a calculated risk where you say, Yes. What are, what would the fallout be if it if I get exposed for the fact that I, you know, it's like all those people who get software programming jobs who have kind of BSed their way through a coding boot camp and then they get there and they're like, oh, now I have to have ChatGPT write all of my code. hmm So you really do. Even if you say yes, I mean, the one caveat I would say is it has to be a safe environment in some way. So if you're an yeah. assistant, like, what's the what's the most damage you could possibly do by saying
1: yes? Well, so, yeah, that's the thing is, like, I'm getting the call because I have experience as an assistant, not because I have experience in television Uh-ha. necessarily. Uh-huh. So I think that was kind of like the the trip up there. Um, and, yeah, I just never said that I didn't have television experience Um Because you know, uh, in school they took us. They we had a television class, and then they took us to one studio. And then, you know, um, I got a call um, throughout my time in college. um, I hung lights at CNBC, for example, or they would call. And then one of my, like the Vectorworks teacher at the time, he was um, one of the lighting director there, so I got to like sit down and see how like they did. Um, they did their shows and, like, how they programmed everything. So I was like, yeah, I have television experience. And, and, like, to a degree, it's not a lie. But in terms of, like, I really like the term of, like, building a house <laughs> of cards. Because after I had that pilot episode, not only did I build a good relationship with him. And then he hired me to do some drafting projects for Maury and, like, Wendy Williams when they did their redesign. And, and filled in as the lighting director for some of those shows as well. Um, as a substitute. Um, I also used that leverage. I was like, okay, you know, now I've done an actual pilot episode for a new show so that when I got the call from NBC and they were like, do you have television experience? It was like, yeah, I do. Yes. I do have television experience. Yes.
0: Yes. You build your se- That is it. I mean, house of cards is a really interesting metaphor. It's like kind of a snowball effect mm-hmm. where, yeah, you say some, you say yes to a little pebble uh, and then it rolls and rolls and gets bigger and bigger until it's just kind of something that you do uh, exactly that's that's really interesting I, I, I think the other thing that is a niche that you occupied for a while which would be interesting to hear about a little bit because this is a major difference between you and me like I am not the best of assistants mm. I, I I did assist quite a bit I did a lot of a lot of transcription, a lot of, under-the-hood music assistant work when I got to the city because there is a certain regard of, like, you can't just jump in. Like, yeah. unless you're someone who's established a reputation regionally, you know, or you got fresh out and... It's harder. There's two
1: different, like, pathways, I guess, too. Right.
0: So, I mean, for you, for, for people listening who maybe haven't thought of this fully, other than a way of paying your debts... You know, you were really. It was always apparent to me that you were a very good assistant. So, like, what mm. were what were the kind of skills uh, for people listening if they're thinking of trying to go more that path than just oh, I want to be doing the job and I'll take whatever I have to take? But you you were just very good at it, and there are a lot of career opportunities to being assistant associate uh, that made made other people hire you. Mm-hmm. So, what were those qualities?
1: You're gonna hate my answer Give because t- <laughs> because. <laughs> What I think I brought to the table as an assistant was the fact that I experienced so much trauma in my life oh. that I was just such a constant. I was so intuitive when people, um, you know, trauma kind of make this. Is, now I'm bringing the therapist inside of me. Let's in. Let's
0: go. This is now it's a therapy <laughs> podcast. I mean, there's no set definition for what this is. <laughs>
1: I'm bringing it in. I'm going to be the first one to do it. We're diving head first. Um, yeah, I think what kind... Because trauma makes you so hyper-aware of other people's emotions. So when you're dealing with someone who... um you know, is a hothead or really volatile um, of a person or has fluctuating moods. Um, when you have experience, like, there's nothing that can replace life experience of being in a room with someone like that. And not to say that all lighting designers or, you know, all designers in general or all people in this industry are hotheads, but you come across them, way more frequently than, you know, I think people like to admit to themselves. Um, I've been called, I've been called the asshole whisperer.
0: (laughs) I've never heard you say that. (laughs) That's so funny.
1: Um, And I really do upon reflection and having space away from it. I think it's because I experienced so much trauma in my life and, you gain real life experience in dealing with people who have those kind of moods. Um, and this is what I wrote about to get into Columbia as Let's a go. social worker as Let's well. Go. Um is that that unique like being in tune with someone's emotions. Um is what may be a good assistant. Like like yes, there's the paperwork and the blah 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 blah. Whatever, who cares? Like everyone can do that paperwork. Sure. Like if you have a if you literally have an internet access, um you can figure out how to do it. Like it's really I think people harp on that way too much. It's it in, in the same way that like getting jobs is mostly connections, being an assistant is mostly emotional work.
0: You know, it's really interesting you say that because hearing it phrased like that it, it it makes me realize that there's parallels even though I'm not an assistant in some ways being a you know a music director in a lot of the work that I've done kind of is being the assistant the person propping up and taking care of the people who are performing as well and mm-hmm. i think that even if i see myself you know maybe that's maybe that's the issue is that music assistant is different in a sense, because you're preparing the thing for the person to take care. you like, th- there's a different care yeah. structure. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm just, this is all, this is all new. These are all new thoughts. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, well, like lighting designers aren't really taking care of other people on the team in the exactly, same way that a music director exactly. is. Exactly, music
0: director is such a social, you know, director and music director are definitely, and choreographer mm-hmm. uh, on anything, uh, uh, or producer or all these people who are kind of cl- uh, facing the actors or facing investors or facing all these people. There is so much management.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there's so much that if someone trusts in you, and is willing to hire you, it's not just because you're a good musician. Uh, It it is a sense of they trust that wherever they're going and whatever happens, they're taking care of. Yeah. And my way of taking care, I think, was much more like a musical care. And I also have my own interpretation, which I can help amplify. I think I'm an amplifier more than a generator. But uh, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I actually do feel a lot of resonance that I, I don't think I've thought about before. How your position as an assistant—that like it, it is different to be a lighting designer than to be a music director, even though they're kind of like two figureheads of a of the industry in, in, on a show. Yeah. Uh so I find I find that very interesting. Uh,
1: I think that's kind of like why, like we kind of found each other in a way, though, too, because I think I think um, yeah, I, I mean, you you kind of got hired like. It got your roles because pe- it's like yes, musical talent and knowledge plays a role in it. Like, I don't mean to like. It plays com- a
0: very, very big role.
1: But like, but like, also wanting to be with someone in the room, like not just like a complete kiss ass, like, but but people admire you and people like your energy and people like like that you um are taking their emotions into consideration and i think that's kind of like what made us kind of like have our initial <laughs> kind of attraction to each other as well and that connecting point because in so many ways it's kind of like how did we end up together at all i guess yeah
0: i mean i think the other thing that i had mentioned in the previous podcast which is with with mr kawamura it's interesting to kind of bring back to here because you're actually the one i'm talking to now mm-hmm. Is that, in some ways, y- your admiration and resonance with music gave me an outside perspective. I think I think this is something that Dave and I talked about a little bit. But just how it's really easy if you're not vigilant. Excuse me, I am still sick. Uh,
1: I gave it to him. Sorry, uh, guys. <laughs> it's
0: really if you're very. Uh, it's it's really easy to get calcified. And kind of locked in to the way that things feel within an an industry and the way that people see things and Mm -hmm. judge things. And then to just have someone who, like, doesn't, isn't concerned with musical storytelling the same way, or if you are, it's from a different perspective, just to, like, feel a genuine love of the thing again from someone who's not in it. There, You know, there, that's something that I could that I didn't realize how important it was to me was to, to just be around someone who appreciates the things you love uh, without the financial kind of implications of trying to like make it, you know, trying to trying to film a video of you playing something that's really impressive. But it's like, oh, no, no, no this, you know, your musical tastes, we just happen to align. And that was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that I wouldn't ever discount in terms of.
1: Yeah. I think also like not living with someone that you're like actively competing jobs for. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, people do it and power to them. And there's some really amazing power couples who are both very deep in similar aspects of an industry. Uh, but yeah, like, yeah, I feel like,
1: I don't know. I feel like I would have to sell myself as like a package deal at that point. Like I I couldn't imagine (laughs) like, yeah, seriously. Like how would I not resent someone? Like, I don't know. She's yeah. interesting. It's like I would rather work with them if I'm truly in love with someone and we're in the same industry. I would I would try to like be like, you know, he's coming along for the ride, I guess. You know?
0: Interesting.
1: That's how I would approach it personally, but
0: Yeah. Luckily
1: well, we won't have to deal with that because I don't know how to read music.
0: There we go. <laughs> but I don't know how to read electricity. So <laughs>
1: Me neither, girl. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> so you know, so your career continues to snowball. And you got to some pretty cool highs. I mean, you you won an Emmy.
1: I did, yeah. Uh, you... How did that happen? I don't know. It's
0: crazy. <laughs> you made people look the right way, and it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. And then you also um, worked on a very successful off-Broadway show uh, right before the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I guess, like... What was there ever anything when when stuff was working and did feel aligned? Did you still have these feelings in the background of like, man, this is unjust or once once you're making some sort of paycheck or like it felt more like it was something that you owned in a way where you're like, oh, I'm not just kind of on the fringes, but I'm establishing myself here. Mm -hmm. I'm making the connections like was there a point where you saw the career had the pandemic not happened that you were like, okay, no, no, no. I'm going to do this.
1: Yes. I think, um, I have such an interesting relationship with my lighting career, I guess from that aspect, because, you know, uh, I came off of such a high and I really loved my last off Broadway show that I did pre pandemic. Um, And when we met, I was like, yeah, like, this is what, I'm doing this forever because I was coming off of such a high from it. And I really was passionate about the project. And, um, but that was the first time that I think I felt like I was doing a theater related show and I felt like actually fairly paid. Um, not that it was good. Like, I want to be clear. There's a difference between like having good pay and having like, like I felt like I well, was can we, fairly can we talk? compensated. Do you feel
0: so without necessarily even needing to state the show? Yeah. 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 Do you, Oh
1: yeah. I'll lay it all out. Yeah, I'll Lay Here it you all guys. out. So like <laughs> what,
0: what, what was the amount of work that it entailed? Like yeah. both daily and or just time commitment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how was the pay structure? I assume you didn't have an agent or someone negotiating no, for you.
1: No, no, no. no, I did not have an agent negotiating for me. Um, But the lighting designer, uh, it also really depends on your relationship with the lighting designer that you're working for. Like, for example, um, you know, an assistant role can look in terms of like your responsibilities can look really different uh, depending on who you're working with. So usually assistants kind of like are there from the beginning, I guess, in a traditional sense. That was that was not my relationship with this lighting designer. Um, Mm. I kind of got pulled in honestly, right before tech, like, yeah, I think, um, they're, they're usually more part of the like bid process. Like, um, for those of you who don't know, like the bid process of like getting lighting, like dealing with the budget and like seeing what lights you want to get and like Designing the plot together, like I our relationship. The bid
0: bid, the, B-I-D the yeah. Bid process yeah yeah where you submit
1: you submit it to um you submit like what kind of lights you want you send them around to different shops and someone will give you a quote and you decide you know and you send it back and forth. Yeah, because I'll be totally
0: honest. Uh, as as someone who's in the industry and sees these at production meetings, mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people don't get to see that side. So you know, all the designers before when they're designing the show, once they have an initial design, what they have to kind of firm up what the rental package looks like and then yeah. submit that. That's the bid?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then some some uh, designers have, like, stronger relationships with certain shops, I guess. Like Like, if you know, like, someone who's the VP of it, you're just like, oh, I'm just going to text this bid to this dude and he's going to throw in a couple, like color force 40 I don't know whatever I don't even know what they are anymore <laughs> so, so
0: that's really interesting to know though so yeah. in terms of where you can get bid, do you submit the bid to multiple shot like because I would think that that's yeah. something that production does not something that the lighting director is like hey I have a relationship with this house I guess it kind of makes sense
1: yeah. But well, because, yeah, if you have a relationship with, with like certain houses, yes, they'll, they'll throw in like extra lights for you. For, wow. For free sometimes. Like,
0: see, it's all about favors. It really is.
1: Well, it's all who you know and who you blow, guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> not that I would ever advocate for that. But, um, yeah, they, they do, they do have sometimes have that relationship. But there is, I mean, there are times where people, um, where the producer does have a strong role in like, no, we're using this shot because they had the lowest bid. Like, it doesn't matter what they're throwing in. Like, they can strong arm you on the, on that sure. aspect as well. Um, that <coughs> that's me. happened a, on a couple a, a couple of times. But then again, you know, as an assistant, I was only really pulled in uh, right before tech because that was our um, that was our agreement in our relationship. And you okay, know. okay, so
0: so who was your your agreement was with the lighting direct lighting designer, designer not yeah. with the show.
1: Um, no, my contract was with the show, um, the show. but yeah, I mean, there's kind of like a loose outline of like what they want you to do, it, especially depending on when you were hired, to be honest, like the show could already be designed at that point. And they're like, oh, now we're ha- hiring an assistant. Like they just need them for tech, for example, uh-huh. like I was, um, uh, but yeah, I don't, I, it can, my contract is with the production company, uh, part of the show, and I'm part, and I'm paid through. That. Some sometimes um, assistants are paid through the lighting designer, and the lighting designer chooses to make it out of the bu- budget. But um, right. in this instance that I'm talking about, where I felt like I was paid fairly for the first time for my work, um, and that, and that's part of the reason is because I didn't do all of the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So how much did you make? And for the tech, so you came in right before tech,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: then how long into the show opening? Like, how many weeks were you really there?
1: Was there? Every single day for about, like, 16 hours a day. Oh. Yeah, long day. Long I mean, we days. all
0: do it. We all do we it. We do.
1: I can't believe it. Because, like, after an eight-hour day, I'm like, that was long. <laughs> the pandemic wore me out. No, we all do it. Um, But, yeah, no, it would be every single day for 16-hour days, maybe two and a half weeks. Okay. Um, and I got paid
0: $2,500. Okay. So... That is a lot of hours. But yeah, I mean, if you're taking that so, and then the other question is, can't were you able to take other things at that during that no. not at all? No. You couldn't even do pre pro on. Well, something I else. think that's also
1: what's that is also a really interesting note to make in terms of like different roles in the industry as a lighting designer, there's like essentially no, like your job is to be in tech. Like everyone else, you know, when I talk to you, for example, you're like, Oh, we're in tech. It's fine though. Like I'll FaceTime you. Like
0: tech is (laughs) 85%. I've done, I've done all my work. Unless something is critically terrible and there are big changes happening. God, by the time we hit tech, my job better be done. Yeah. And we just we just go from And Q- you're just like to... running it. At yeah, that we point, run right? like little snippets from here to there, yeah. and then lighting takes an hour to adjust everything.
1: Exactly. But that's the thing. Like everyone else is sitting nice, easy breezy, beautiful well, cover yeah. girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But light lighting and then if there's projections on the show are just like and
0: sound. Sound's doing a lot. Don't leave out sound. Don't hate on sound. Well, Sounds- they're... no but they're it's trying. Like,
1: I'm not say, I'm not trying to discredit I think sound it sound is really difficult and hard but in terms of tech like not as much the to be programming honest
0: programming and getting eq's finesse no I know yeah, it's, not, but, it's not nearly as crazy. But for
1: what like in the same it's the same thing as like they're more they're more probably related to a music director I think especially but like they just mixers. don't come in a,
0: they don't come in until last they don't get to do anything until tech either mm-hmm. I, I just don't want to spread any hate to sound people because I think it's a very noble job that I've done. Many no, times
1: well. I'm not here to spread hate. I'm just saying no, in I terms know. I'm of just, like people, you. people, at, you have like, you know, let's say week, week, let's say, let's say tech is one week, right? Like, I think it might've been for this show. It might've been, it might've been seven days. It might've been five days. I don't know. It was three years ago at this point. Um,
0: it was f- four years ago
1: at this point. Almost four years. Yes. Oh my God. So old. What happened to my youth? Um, uh, what was I talking about?
0: <laughs> uh, lighting lighting versus sound um, in tech. You had a week.
1: Yes. Let's say, let's say, let's say you have a week, right. And the week of, of tech time. Right. And yes, yes. You're dealing with quick changes. Yes. You're dealing with like props backstage and like, there's lots of other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, but, but literally sit here and realize for a fact that you have one week to do your job. Like, yeah. like, yes, you, yes, you're part of the bidding process. Yes, you're part, you got to do the plot and there's load in, there's focus and like blah, 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 You have, it doesn't matter at all. None of those things matter if yeah. it looks like shit. Like yeah. you have one week to do your, to do your actual job. Sure. Um and there's a lot of work that goes in especially with if there's like time code involved or like other midi cues like there's yeah, no, a lot there not even just from a design standpoint and like making things look cool it's like actually getting it to fucking function too yeah. and like you, that's why your team has to be like seamless and that's why you spend i mean that's why and that goes back to the same conversation as to why I was hired who wants to spend 16 hours every single day for two and a half weeks with someone who's working under such an intense pressure like that with someone you don't like
0: no exactly
1: and you, you don't trust like you can't do it being a trustworthy likable person that can like keep people focused into such like crunch time is crucial
0: yes. So that was the last gig there. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So
0: thank you for sharing that. Uh, so then just to give people a sense mm-hmm. in terms of before you, you know, have been making your big career switch, just, just to talk a little bit about the realities of what TV is structured like in terms of how you were able to make a living there. Like, yeah. so can you just explain a little about you know, how you're hired for things about what a shift entails about minimums or about over just, just to give people, cause I I think these are things that people just don't until you're in the industry trying to find these things and talk to people. No one's talking about like, Hey, here's how much like this makes hourly or Hey, this is, we pay you for a week and you do X, Y, Z. Uh, so, you know, in a given month, Either for something like Maury or like uh, Jerry Springer mm-hmm. or NBC Sports, what are what are the structures like there and what is required of you versus what is the kind of like pay structure there?
1: Yeah. Um, so um I only joined my first union within the last couple of months. I'm part of NABIT now, N-A-B-E-T. And it's part of like Let's go. the communication workers of America. It's like one of a subset of a larger communication workers, which I think has like radio and like any, any other broadcast type television. Um, um, but there's kind of like two, there's two branches of like unions that could be operating. So it could be NABIT, um, or it could be IATSE as well. IATSE also does a lot of, um, theater and uh, in all honesty, is probably the better union of the two, um, in terms of like securing <laughs> better rates and structures. Well, and we rules. also
0: saw all the IATSE stuff when uh, there was that Alec Baldwin uh, rust issue. Oh like they God. were on they yeah. were on film stuff too. That was so. crazy.
1: I was eating that news up. With like <laughs> I was on it every day. I know.
0: Well, I was. It was crazy. But yeah. So okay. Yeah. So there are two unions. So not to not to derail us.
1: Um. I'm probably not the best person to talk to about in terms of like why there's one union and over another, but I know you have to like vote your union in, for example. Um, and they have to have like, uh you know, so anyways, in terms of pay structure, um for Maury and, like, those studio shows and Jerry Springer's judge show, um, <laughs> even though I wasn't part of the union, because, like I said, I only joined uh, the union, they kind of operated under union rules, right? Because the the electricians and the stagehands there were part of Local One, which is IATSE. Gotcha. Um, so because they work under that schedule, there's, like, you know, very clear break times. There was very clear, like meal breaks and you get paid like a meal penalty so anyways my my even though i wasn't part of the union my Mm -hmm. my contract was directly with the company um got you which isn't the case if you're part of the union if you're part of the union the union has a deal with the company and you and you're part of the union which is now my case currently got you um i know it's so confusing um, yeah, these are the thing, and- well, and
0: this is kind of why I love having these conversations, right? Because mm-hmm. when did you take a class in school that was union Never. structure? <laughs> like, like, you hear yeah. about it a little bit on the daily or on people being like, oh, the auto workers union and mm-hmm. this is what they fought for. But the actual reality of like, what is it to be a part of a union and deal with it? Like, I mean, there's a lot of really crazy things where technically, yeah, if you're in the musician's union, if you're in local 802, if you're in New York City, Technically, you're not supposed to take other work, but like, you know, there, there's all these workarounds and there's all these things. Yeah. You know, actors' equity, people are you go performing under pseudonym to not have to, you know, yep. release their names, stuff like this. So I, I find this fascinating. It's really comp- – a lot of it's very co- convoluted and complicated. So It is. But it So is. you're paid through the company as a union worker, but you weren't part of the union.
1: Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot. See, I didn't even get it right.
0: You're paid through the company at a union rate.
1: So uh I also know. It was a Oh my god. The union kind of set it, it, the union set a precedent. Is, is so like I the union essentially had the only role it played was like it was setting kind of like the the structure of the day. Sure. For you um and also the like because you know like that's also the thing like when you know a union is in there they have this thing called C, so CBA is a term. It's also really funny because I'll be talking to someone who like is supposed to be in charge of like payroll or something, and I'm like, you know, once NABIT came into NBC Sports, I was like, oh, like, is there a collective bargaining agreement yet? And they were like, well, what's that? Like they like, yeah. you're right, like nobody really even knows even no people that are supposed to know. That, Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of the idea here is just hearing from people who are part of one or who aren't, and what that affords and. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. so.
1: anyways, um, in that in that specific scenario, um, the union kind of set like you know when there's a collective bargaining ag- agreement for the stagehand workers, for example, yeah. you can see what they're making, right? Um, so you kind of use that as like a negotiation scale. Point. We
0: call that scale.
1: Yeah. There's a there's a scale that they work under based off of like how many, whether what contract you're on, and I think it also like depends on like. How many viewers there are in, in broadcast weird. television? Like Oh,
0: that's so weird. It's very strange. But oh, also when you think metrics. about
1: it, it's kind of similar to um like like whether it's a Broadway show or off Broadway show. It's how many people can sit in the fucking theater. Like Yeah.
0: That's <laughs> no, I mean that's that's fair. It's just interesting because the union rates for musicians stuff is yeah, it's it's our it's hour based, but then also for like orchestration stuff, it's like how many lines are on a page and you yeah. paid for, you know, so uh
1: but they don't set... So what's so interesting, I think, also about IATSE and also NABIT is they set, like, a weekly rate. So then you have to, like, do some weird math and you're like, okay... Divide are by they, seven. Well, are they... No, 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 no. Are they... divide? I think I know, the rule I'm of thumb just, is, like, they're dividing you. it over... You're, you're paid hourly, but then they're like, here's the minimum for the week. And so you're like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, if I'm working a 40-hour... I think they do it off of a 40 hour work week and then you work backwards and then you're like, okay, so based off of that number, this is my hourly rate.
0: Well, so this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because your minimum number of hours for a shift, even if you worked an hour mm-hmm. at Jerry and those places was, if I'm not mistaken, it was 10 hours, yes. right? Yes. So if you worked, f- if you went into work for an hour, four days a week, yes, you made a 40 hour work week.
1: Yeah. That's that
0: crazy, man. Yeah. I always thought that was the craziest thing. How So
1: you can get spoiled with that though, too, yes, because you when you have to actually work the 10 hours, you're like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but just for people listening, just to, just to kind of like hint at this, how much did a 10 hour shift pay you at, uh, at those places?
1: Yeah. A 10, a 10 hour shift. So this was set because it was directly with the company. Right. Um, I want to say, but I also, like, don't want to hurt my... I don't want to, like, put people on blast, I guess.
0: Okay, well, I mean, th- that's okay if you don't want to share.
1: Here's what I will say. In terms of, like, the the minimums that... Um, in terms of the minimums, like like you said, if I was coming in for an hour, um, I will say that during COVID... <laughs> 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 this was the best gig I ever got. It's never going to happen again. Um... <laughs> um, and they changed it really quickly once they realized what was happening. Um, because I can't come into work without getting paid, but during at the beginning of the pandemic, especially when it was really scary and there was no vaccine, um, they wanted us to come into work. And part of that protocol was they were going to uh, provide a COVID test to make sure you were negative so that you can come into work that week. So I get tested once a week. At the facility, I would have to drive down there, get tested there. They had, like, their own nurse and whatever. um, But they had to pay me a 10-hour shift because I came into work that day. And because
0: you (laughs) couldn't have the test the same day as work because they needed time to process. Correct.
1: So it was, like, an absolute, like... Uh, free of charge, full you know, day
0: for full one day, nose full day
1: for them to take a couple boogers out of my nose. Well, and this is the <laughs>
0: thing, right? Is and I think I think they changed
1: a, that really quickly. Sure, I
0: think there's <laughs> once a genu- they figured that out. But I think Yeah, there's those a genuine, first couple. There's a genuine conversation to be had here for like when something new happens. How does a union qualify it? Right, like a COVID test and the the things that that entails. It, it's a whole new thing, so they're trying to fit it under a conventional structure. I mean, I think the same thing is true of other things where like, okay, conventionally you have to conduct a show, but now you have to press an Ableton pedal to make things go. And like, what is, you know, how does that fit in? And just just like the government, in a way, unions are just a more... It's a little more amorphous because if there's something new that's not like standardized yet, but a show does it, hmm. they have to, we have to we all have to figure out a way to qualify it. Yeah. Same thing as like how does something qualify for insurance if you know you have to expense it? So sometimes you know that that that's potentially a pitfall. In this case, it worked out beautifully for you. Yeah. Because you got a full day for getting a nose swab.
1: Yeah. But-, but but yeah, I mean, that job was stressful. Like people, it's funny because I actually work in an environment now, like as as a counselor at a school where sometimes it actually is life or death. People in the entertainment industry act like it's life or death all the time. Yeah. Oh,
0: it's, par- I mean, if a lot of times... For it really dis- no good reason. <laughs> I mean, it really depends, right? Maybe it's not your ass on the line. But I I definitely know Like, I've spent a decent amount of... And this is something I'm actually interested in for future episodes of this podcast. I think a lot of people don't understand what it's like on the other side of all of this to actually finance and put up a show or a TV show or whatever. And everyone's like, oh, it got cut and taken off and people's livelihoods are destroyed. And I think it's terrible. And I think corporations are absolutely doing everything they can to minimize expenses. But at the same time, you know, there are realities of what it is to ungreedily, if you were to balance the books and just look at the actual operating costs here, you know, I think, I think there's the other side to it too, which is just like, it's expensive to do. And so even if you're not losing your shirt and you're like, ah, screw it. It's just like, I mean, giant companies is one thing, but like, you know, people who are individual stuff, someone may, someone might be losing years worth of investments that they wanted, that they thought they were betting on. Yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting aspect of the industry that's pervasive and that we don't talk about a ton. Uh, you know, if you go to Lincoln Center and you look at the hundreds and thousands of people from private donors who it takes to run that thing, it's not and people have you know this this other half of the conversation I think is really interesting too of just like what does it cost to put something up? And how do you you know if you're running it as a business, what are ethical practices and such? So yeah. I, I think that's the other side that 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 well, we have this conversation
1: up. all the time, which is like because because things are so expensive to put up, like that's why people are only making re like when you think of like new shows on Broadway, for example, people are only putting up shit that they know will work. Like they're doing like revivals or they're like, oh, this had this did really well." this did really well off Broadway. So now like we're willing to like, you're not really getting the new kind of shows, um, but also in terms of like television and movies, like we're getting fucking like boss baby part eight. Like,
0: sure. I mean, I think that, and and those are all the kind of conversations about what is popular, uh, you know, what is pop art and what is pop music and what is pop theater and and how yeah how kind of recursive and pervasive it's gotten i think it was always you know disney disney did it years ago with lion king which is still very a very magical show and very awesome show mm-hmm. but yeah i mean i i think also maybe there's a certain uh there, there could be a certain laziness or a certain kind of just desire to get something up and just make it happen especially post covid so yeah, uh, or maybe not laziness, but maybe just desire to be like, oh, we got derailed, and and we've had this project in the back back line in the you know in the pipes for a long time, and we should. There's there's a million different reasons, and I think I'm not an advocate to just write everything off, but also yeah, I mean stuff feels really tired right now, so yeah. you know I think it's a it, that's that the whole thing is a huge conversation that's not, you know, the conversation we're gonna have at the moment, and I think. The conversation I do want to have at the moment is just like, if you could, you know, tell yourself in the past from your vantage point here, uh, what life feels like and what you've, you know, kind of learned from this whole experience of doing it and really doing it in the city, but then kind of pivoting and finding something else that feels good I mean, is there anything that you feel like you would share with yourself that mm. you're younger self?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a good question. Um I feel like in terms of how I chose to handle my career, I'm I'm really happy with it, to be honest. Like, I think I think I played my cards right. I think I built a beautiful house of cards for myself that, you know, got me really far in a really short amount of period of time without necessarily being like overtly cutthroat and like backstabby I think as it can get um um but yeah I mean because I didn't enjoy school like there was such a huge philosophy I think hopefully it has dissolved a lot more since then but there was such a huge philosophy of like you know Oh, well, if you're, it was so, it was so cult-like and and clicky, um, in the entertainment industry and, like, in a, in a conservatory especially, that, like, um, I thought I was gonna lose my entire, like, I thought I was gonna lose my entire friend group if I had quit, um, However, that should have been my first sign that like I just don't fucking like this. <laughs> mm-hmm. That that should have been like my first sign that like this isn't for me. But I was so against the philosophy of like, you know, I was I was fighting against my dad of like, why aren't you being an engineer? Like, no, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to go into this thing. Um Sure. Um and you know everyone's kind of like they'll like talk about people that like left the program for example and be like oh yeah they were never gonna make it oh yeah, yeah, yeah there like, is a there's a
0: huge 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 gatekeeping thing but i guess yeah but i guess to all the haters out there uh or just all the people like struggling with feelings like this what you know do you find yourself less motivated now to to go seek out art or to go seek out things that remind you of why you did it like do you feel less connected in a certain sense uh or do you feel like it's you know how do you feel your relationship right now to fine and performing arts is
1: to finding don't
0: find fine and performing arts oh
1: fine fine arts Um... fine arts
0: and performing arts
1: yeah, I don't know, dude. It's so, we have this conversation all the time with each other, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, but now it's for people.
1: Yeah, I know. But it's like, what is my relationship with it anymore? I was never, you know, like we said, I was never really like, oh, it's all about, like, I love musical theater and that's why I'm doing musical theater. Or like, I'm so, I love this playwright. Like, I never came from that philosophy. No, but you of came it. from
0: a place where you would have your favorite bands on like 25-7. Yeah, Like you definitely, it wasn't for lack of love of music or, or, you know, cinema or anything like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think also, I think as, as millennials, we kind of grew up under a different philosophy of like, you know, our parents always kind of taught us do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, But in reality, doing what I loved at the time made it work. Like, I think having space from it honestly has been I've been more inspired and artistic than I have been when I was doing it for my job. Like, I I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it's (laughs) like the second you kind of just like let your hobbies be hobbies and like remove capitalism from it, it's it kind of all just like it feels good again. Like, I'm 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 not forcing myself to make art Um in the same way, but now I'm like, you know what? I never got, I never had a chance. I was so married to like lighting design and that part of my career that like, I never got to join like the costume, like mm. sector, for example. And then I just bought like a fucking sewing machine. I'm like, I'm going to learn how to sew now. Like- sure,
0: sure, sure. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's interesting because there's definitely a fundamental f- fibrousness of myself and a lot of musicians Because I'm a musician, most, you know, and actors, but especially musicians who have been doing it or dancers, actors, musicians who have been doing it since they were two.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So I think when it is written into your DNA, in a in some regard, it can be scarier to even try to let go a little bit Mm -hmm. because when you are it and it is you there's very little separate there's you don't you can't kind of take the subject and make it an object see but this
1: conversation is what i love i think the most out of everything which is why i chose to change change fields because there's a marriage there between identity and self and like what you're able to produce and especially if you choose to go into a career in it it's then it's married with capitalism as well so there's kind of like this it's not necessarily, I guess, what everyone calls the dark triad, but it's like a second dark triad that exists where it's like there's the self and then there's the the art and then there's the the making money of the art. Right,
0: and I think the making, and I guess where I would love to kind of end is that that making money half, the reason I want to do this at all and have these conversations at all is because we focus a ton on the self and a ton on the art and a ton on the outward side. And I feel like the, the, the you know, top of the pyramid here, or maybe, maybe it's not the top. Maybe it's one of the two feet. Maybe it's the hidden foundation, right? It's like underground here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it just is a part of the conversation. And we pretend a lot of times like it's not. Mm-hmm. We get our paycheck and then the moment we have a paycheck, we're like, now just art. And I do think that's the way you have to do it. But I think while we're having the conversation overall, there's a lot that's just not... We're not admitting. We're just not admitting. It's not bad. There's no fundamental bad value judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, that capitalism is what it is. Making a career is what it is. And we just can't lie about the fact that it's part of it. Mm -hmm. And it just is part of it. So I think that is... That brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, that was great. Thank you so much for being guest number two.
1: Well, you know, if you ever want to talk again, I'm around Are in you? your office all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think you can
0: see my my hand. Oh. Yeah, somewhere in. Uh, anyway, thank you to everybody. for. Tu- thank you if you're listening to this. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, sorry that I am sick this week. I hope to be not sick next week. Um, and we will continue having conversations with various people. Uh, thank you again to Lizzie, and do you have any parting words of anything <laughs> for for the people?
1: Yes, um, be, I think I think where we left off today with the the identity and the capitalism and the self, like the more you can introduce space in between those three things, the happier of a person you will be overall. Ooh. Like, that's what that's what I will part with. Like, if you want to keep them all in the same genre of, like, this is part of my identity and it's also what I do for work, the more you can introduce space. in between there, the more of a calm and a better artist and a better, like, working musician or whatever you are, like, the happier of a person you will be overall. That's what I'll leave everyone with.
0: I guess my only tiny follow-up is can you do that whilst do you need to step away from what you're doing to make that happen or are you saying just the awareness
1: it's it's a mindfulness practice It's there we go. It's, it's understanding what you're doing for work what you're doing for your art and what you're doing for yourself and sometimes they can all be the same thing and, it, and recognizing that they're all the same thing for a specific instance then that awareness can kind of like bring perspective into whatever you're dealing with um, in terms of a challenge, I guess.
0: Well, couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you all next week. Thank you again to Lizzie Mahoney for being the second guest on this show. We have a website coming out soon. Uh, We will let you guys know when that is available. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will see you next week here on Taken Off the Ritz.